Good morning. Uh, we're inside. That's a big bummer, isn't it? Uh, if you are a guest with us, we are glad that you made your way inside, and maybe you came and planned for an outdoor service and the excitement around that, only to find out that it's raining. Uh, but a couple things about that. We have food for you. Uh, they, I think they smoked like 300 pounds of pork. So there's a lot of food and there's sides. There's a meal for like everyone in your family and your extended family, and your neighbors and your coworkers. <laughs> like grab a thing of food on your way out. There's a whole line. You grab a whole meal and you can get home. Lunch is provided today. Thanks for being here at New Hope. <laughs> the other thing is this. We are going to try one more time. We're not going to have Harvest Fest in the party, but I think we're going to try to have just the outdoor service. We got a, a slide here. You see that? So it's no longer on the third. <laughs> We are just going to do it on the 10th. So next week at 9.30, one service, all the church can be together. We are trying to have it one more time. If it gets rained out next week, you'll get the same communication you did this time. Hey, we're not going to be able to do it, and we're not going to try again. We're not going to push this thing into the winter. We're all outside cold, right? You guys, if you've been here for a while, you know my feelings about the weather and the changes that are coming. So uh, the other thing is this. We have this Wednesday what we call our Head, Heart, Hands launch night. Head Hard Hands is an approach that we are taking with discipleship groups and discipleship in general, where we're inviting everybody in the church, whether you're a part of a group or not, we're asking all groups to meet that night, come, be a part of this, uh, but also anyone in the church, even if you're not a part of a group or you're just wanting to check it out, this Head Heart Hands approach to understanding discipleship will benefit you, your family, your discipleship group. We want to invite everybody to come this coming Wednesday night. So if you have questions, check out the website. Let us know whatever we can do to help get you there to be part of that. If you have your Bible, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians 5 as we continue our journey through First and 2 Corinthians this year. I'm going to pray for us and we'll jump in. Father, we thank you that you are sovereign. And we thank you, God, that you have control of everything, even the weather. And so when it's raining and we're in here, we're in here because this is where you want us to be this morning. And so we come before you and we submit to that sovereignty, knowing that there are no mistakes in your economy. There are no mistakes in your kingdom, and you want us to be here. And so would you speak clearly to us from your word? And we ask you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever been interested in something where you got really excited, but the more you figured out it entailed, the less excited you were? Right? Like, eh, I thought that was cool, but it's not so cool. A preacher that received an email from someone in his congregation New Year's Eve. Here's what she wrote about her initial, like, I want to work out and, then, and, and be healthy, but then it costs too much, so I'm not going to do it. And then my doctor said, yes, you are. Here's what she wrote. Before you lay any guilt trips on me about New Year's resolutions, I want you to know that my doctor recommended that I join a gym. And I knew that he was right because I am totally out of shape. So I signed up for the aerobics class thinking that I would just ease my way back into this whole exercise thing. She said, I squirmed, I twisted, I gyrated, I jumped up and down, panted and perspired for more than an hour. But by the time I got the spandex on, the class was over. <laughs> Maybe you've experienced, some of you are like, yeah, that's working out. Like, that's what it is. Is, that, is it more than that? <laughs> this is what many of us experience about certain things. For me, it's running. Got this great thought about being a runner. And I've always been like, yeah, running sounds great. I want to be a runner. And I'm surrounded by runners, right? Like the elders at this church, many of them run. And for years, they've tried to get me to be a runner. And they've told me about the benefits of running. My daughter runs cross country now, which genetically makes no sense. Like, what are you doing? But she loves it. And so we love it too, because she loves it. And so she has got me to go running and we do it different, meaning I have to like 
let her go home and then I catch up later, right? Uh, Ryan King on staff, he preached last week and, and he runs and I've traveled with him. And the idea of being a runner and being able to do what he does, like, right? I wake up, I'm like, hey, dude, when's the breakfast at this hotel? He's like, I don't know. I just got back from my run. I'm in a shower. I'm like, of course you did. Yeah, like you're a runner, right? And, and, and he runs and he's healthy. And I've always thought, man, it would be so awesome to be like that. When I travel and I go places, man, I wake up early, I go for a run and I feel great about my day. That's not how things have worked out in my life uh, for me, but I've tried. And I even tried, like I got these shoes. But I, I went out and bought these shoes. These shoes were over $120. Now, something you need to know about me. I don't ever spend more than 50 bucks on shoes. But my daughter was on the cross-country team. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this because the whole idea of being a dad that runs was awesome, right? And so I got really good running shoes a year ago, okay? <laughs> not kidding. I got these shoes a year ago. These things are so nice. If I returned them, they'd put them on the shelf and sell them again. Like they've been running like twice, right? Like I loved the idea and so I spent the money and I was like, I'm gonna get the stuff and I got excited and I'm gonna run and I read about it online and I thought, how do you work your way up to this? And then I'm like, I'm gonna go for runs with my daughter and we would go for runs and now I ride my bike while she runs. It's just the way things worked out for us, right? I loved the idea of running. Here, here's the point. I wanted running until I considered the cost. And then I thought, like, what all is encompassed in this running thing? Like eating healthy? Maybe. Not always. Okay. What about the discipline of getting up early to run? I mean, I don't mind getting up early. The whole running part didn't sit with me. Or how about actually running? That part never got fun. They say runner's euphoria. That's a lie. No one ever, <laughs> ever experienced that in their whole life. I think they're all lying to all of us. No one likes to run. And so I count the cost of what it entails, and I come to the conclusion, it's not worth it. I'm not going to be a runner. I want the runner life, but I'm not willing to adopt the runner lifestyle. And I think many of us feel that tension when it comes to following Jesus. I mean, we love the idea of following Jesus. I want that life that Jesus describes, but I don't know that I'm willing to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. See, in 2 Corinthians 5 that we're going to read, this is what Paul is going to bring up to us, this concept or idea. I like the way John Mark Comer in his excellent book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, in this book, here's how he describes it. He says this. He said, we read the stories of Jesus, his joy, his resolute peace through uncertainty, his unanxious presence, his relaxed manner, and how in the moment he always was. And we think, I want that life. I want those characteristics. We hear his open invite to life, life to the fullest, and we think, sign me up. We hear about his easy yoke and soul deep rest, and we think, I need that in my life. But we just aren't willing to adopt his lifestyle to get it. We want the life of Jesus. We don't always want the lifestyle of Jesus. And Paul here in 2 Corinthians is going to point out something. He wants those who are hearing this letter read in the church in Corinth, that he wants them really to understand a couple things. One, the beauty of the gospel message that you've been reconciled to a holy God. Your sin separated you from him, and he has reconciled. He wants them to see the beauty of that simple and yet profound message once again. But he also wants them to know that you were saved from something, yes, but also you were saved for something. And you, in your being saved for something, have a ministry that's been entrusted to you that requires a change of lifestyle, a change of purpose, a change of connection with everything that's around you. Here's a way to think about it. If we want to experience the life of Jesus, we have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. 
Now, don't hear me wrong. Some of you are like, that's works-based. I'm like, okay, here, we're not talking about salvation. But for many people, we've reduced salvation to this one-time decision that we made. And that's it. Like, I've made this, I'm a Christian. I, you know, I've made this decision. I've been baptized into Christ. I'm good to go. I don't need to think about anything else. And we have neglected to see that this whole thing's a journey that God's on with us, transforming and changing every single part of our life. See, it's, yes, that is an absolutely imperative thing, that decision that you made, that one-time, once-for-all decision. But every decision you make after that has to be impacted by that decision. If you want to experience the fullness of life that Jesus promises, you have to be willing to adopt the lifestyle that he calls us to. Let's see how Paul unpacks this. 2 Corinthians 5, we're going to start in verse 14. Paul writes these words. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So Paul here, he's saying the motivating factor in everything he does in life is this love that he's experienced from God. It's twofold. Now, here's what I love about preaching. I love getting to reveal this to people, especially people that aren't like familiar with this idea. But for the Christians, you've been in church five years, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years. What does it say of us when we can speak of the profound love of God that we've experienced that should compel us to change our life? And you hear that message again, and it's just like, yeah, of course. Like, that's why we come here, right? Like, whatever. And it doesn't impact. The weight of it doesn't sit on our hearts. The fact that the God of the universe sent his son to live the life you could not live, die the death that you deserve to die because of your sin, defeated death, resurrected to give you new life. If that doesn't charge you up, you got to check your pulse. And this is what Paul is saying here. It is that love that compels me to live different than everyone else that's around me. It is that deep sense that I have been reconciled by God. He loved me. He counted me worth loving and caring. And out of that, the love that Paul then feels for God, now that he understands how deeply God loves him, to an extent, the depth of God's love in his life, and he wants to respond to that in the way that he chooses to live. There's a New Testament scholar named David Garland. In his commentary on 2 Corinthians, he describes it this way. He said, Christ's death does not simply guarantee our entrance into God's eternal presence, though it does do that. It must change the way that we live here and now. Anyone who expects to have eternal life must respond properly to Christ's death. This response requires more than intellectual assent to the position that Christ's death atones for sin. So it's more than just simply understanding it. He says, it must mold how one lives. This transforming love that you've experienced in Christ must change the way that you're living your life. In other words, if we want to experience the fullness of life that Jesus promises, we have to adopt the lifestyle that he calls us to. See, when Jesus promised in John 10.10, he said, I have come to give them life, that they may experience life and experience to the fullest That's written in a way, in the original language, that doesn't just speak of eternity. It's the right here and right now. He wants you to experience the fullness of life right here and right now in your life. And if you want to experience that, you have to adopt the lifestyle that he's called you to. Let's see how he continues to unpack this in verse 16. He says, so because of that truth, this love that compels my life, he says, so... From now on, because I've experienced this love, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone and the new is here. See, for Paul, like here, 
Truth was not this subjective thing that was based on how he was feeling. It lied in the objective reality of what Jesus had done. Jesus had come and had died for him. And as a result, his whole life begins to change. Everything begins to look different. Life now has a new filter. He says, we don't longer even look at other human beings the way we used to. I don't look at life situations the way I used to. I don't look at Jesus the way I used to. I don't look at anything the way I used to because everything in life for me has changed. I have a whole new life, a whole new filter. The gospel now becomes the filter. Everything I hear, everything I see, everything I experience, every relationship that I have, everything that I do, every choice that I make, every decision that I plan out is filtered through my understanding of the life of Jesus. I'm his apprentice. And so every day I'm trying to become more and more like him. This is the, what he's called us to. Think about it this way. I get to teach this uh, class in, in uh, school, and I've taught it now. I'm in my eighth year of teaching this worldview class. One of the joys is helping 10th graders begin to see what it is that their relationships do in their life and how the gospel penetrates and, and helps them understand this. And here's what I mean by that. Most, human beings are created for four dominant relationships. Now, there's more, and you can make an argument for more, but there's four categories of relationship that every human being experiences. And, and here they are. Here's an image to help you understand it. See, we have a relationship with God. I relate to God. Or if I'm an atheist, I relate to my idea of the fact that there is no God. Either way, I have this relationship there. I have a relationship with myself how I see myself and understand myself, my experiences in life, the wounds that I carry, the, the things that have shaped and molded me into who I am, my relationship with other people, so how I see them and understand them and the interactions that I have with them and the impact it makes on who I am and who I'm becoming and the world around me. So I understand the culture that I live in. I understand the world around me. I understand that if I go from this culture to a culture on the other side of the world, I need to learn certain things and behave in a certain way and relate to the world that is around me. We all have these relationships. Now, in my experience in ministry, as I've talked to people about the transforming love of God in their life, one of the fascinating things is their understanding of sin is so limited. They understand sin to simply be something that wrecked their relationship with God. And so sin has ruined my relationship with God. A holy God cannot be around me because I have sin in my life. And now Jesus comes and he rescues that. That's a very limited view. It's very true. But for us to understand the impact of sin, you have to understand it has impacted every single part of your life. Here's an image to help understand that. Sin didn't just wreck your relationship with God. Sin has damaged the way you see yourself. Now you have a different way of seeing your own identity and your purpose. Like Different things have changed and shaped. Many of us carry shame and we carry guilt for things that we've done. And we allow those things to define who we think we are. Many of us, the world around us, all we want to do is take, take, take and never give. And so the culture around us, we just get mad. We become keyboard warriors and culture war fighters, and we just want to destroy everything. And the idea of being a peacemaker is just foreign to us. We have to go to war with the world around us, the culture. We have to stand up and defend. And, and it's all this wounded relationship with the world around us. And then the relationship we have with other people. This is why we have broken relationships. This is why we all have experienced brokenness in our relationships. It's why we have things like abuse and divorce and pain, and tragedy, and wounds that we carry with us that are a result of either what we've done to people or what people have done to us. You see, sin wrecked it all. All of it. So when the Apostle Paul comes and he says, if you are in Christ, you are a whole new creation, he's not simply addressing the fact that Jesus reconciled you and the Father, though he did, and that is the most important part of it, because it influences every other part of it. 
But you have to remember, it influences every other part of it. And so it goes right back to this. The gospel does that. It cleans up the whole mess, not just part of it. And so now if we let it, Paul is saying, if you'll allow God's transforming love to compel you to be healed individually so that you can then be a healing force in the world around you, he will. Meaning the gospel then redefines how I see myself. It redefines how I see the world around me and interact in it. It redefines the way that I relate to other people and the way that they relate to me and the way that I see them. This is why Paul just got done writing what we just read. The love of Christ compels me. How? It compels me. I no longer see anybody else or anything else the way that I used to see it. Now, the hard part of this is like some of us are sitting here and we're thinking, yeah, like I know that that's true, but, but really, do you know it's true? Like, is it true of your life? Have you allowed God to come in and redefine the way you see every single part of life? Or do you just show up to church and sit in a seat, stare at a stage on Sunday morning and say, I'm good with God? Transformation looks a whole lot different than church attendance. It's important to be here. Don't hear me wrong. But to be transformed by what God is doing in your life every single day, to invite him into the everyday stuff of your life so that he can help you redefine all of your experiences. Paul continues, when we allow that to take place, look at what happens. Verse 18. All of this comes from God, not from us. We don't earn it. So this isn't a self-help, go get self. No, it's the gospel defining how you see yourself, not some self-help book. It is the gospel. Why? Because it is the work of God in your life, not the work of some psychologist who wrote how you can better understand the way that you tick. And then all of a sudden, now, those things might be helpful and that's fine, but the transformation happens with the power of the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you. This comes from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. So we've experienced this reconciliation. And at the same time, it says he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Well, what is that ministry? Verse 19, that God is reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. So we have this beautiful message. Your sin doesn't need to define you anymore. Now, we limit it to simply define. But look, your sin doesn't need to define the way you relate to God, the way you see yourself, the way you see the world around you, the way you see other people. That's the message of reconciliation that we bring into the world. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. We are therefore, because we have this message that's been entrusted to us, we are Christ's ambassadors. As though God is making his appeal through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. All of this comes from God, who entrusts to us the message of reconciliation. And here's how this just plays out. It's beautiful. This is a lifestyle. How do we know it's a lifestyle? Well, he calls us ambassadors. What's an ambassador? It's somebody who makes a case for the one who sent them. But how can you make a case for the one who sent you if you don't know the one who sent you? So it all starts with us being reconciled to God first. And so I'm reconciled to God, and God continues to do this transformation in my life. I'm not who I was before. I'm a different person. And five years from now, because of the transforming work of God in my life, I'll be even more mature in Christ, better defining my relationship with all of these different things in my life. He's changing me from the outpouring of that transformation. Now I get to take this message that I've experienced that now compels me because I've experienced a deep life-defining love and I take that message into the world that God has entrusted to me. I now take it as a minister of reconciliation. Every Christian, here's what's fascinating about me, if, about all of this, to me about all of this, is God takes... Christians, anyone who is in Christ, if you are an apprentice of Jesus, a disciple of his, if you have been made new in Christ, every single Christian in the world wakes up with a purpose. Maybe you're like, what do you mean? Well, God has given every single one of you a people and a place. 
Every single one of us. You wake up in the morning. He's entrusted to you a people and a place. And what he's saying is, I've reconciled you to myself through Jesus. I'm transforming your life. And the love that you should be experiencing compels you to go to that people in that place and share this very same message of reconciliation with them. This is what he's calling us to do. I love the way one author put it. He said this, The ministry of reconciliation, therefore, involves so much more than simply explaining to others what God has done in Christ. That's an important part. The gospel cannot be shared without words. No one's looking at your camp t-shirt and saying, What must I do to be saved? You have to talk. Okay? Like, it's a part of it. But it's not simply that. It says, It requires that one become an active reconciler oneself. Like Christ, a minister of reconciliation plunges into the midst of human tumult and brings harmony out of the chaos, reconciliation out of estrangement, and love in the place of hate. This is our deep calling. As he transforms our life, we are then called to be an ambassador and to bring that message of reconciliation to other people. And I don't know about you, but that's kind of an exciting thing. An all-powerful God doesn't wait for the world to plead with him. Instead, he brings us as his ambassadors into that world to plead with them. We, we implore you, be reconciled to God. Why? Because it's going to fix your relationship with God, but it's going to heal you. You're going to experience love on a level you've never experienced it. It's going to transform everything about you to the point that it will compel you to share that good news with all of the different people that are around you in your life. This is the work of the church. Look, I've said this before. I really want this to sink in. Like, The church is a collection of people being transformed by God who are now all together collectively ministers of reconciliation. As he continues to transform every part of my life, I'm then compelled by that deep experience of love to go share it with the people around me. And the gathering continues to grow however it grows, but more and more people come to learn how deeply loved they are. This is it. The church has such an important mission to share with this world who is broken and and hurting that we have this message of reconciliation. And the church does it better than any organization on the planet. No one else can do what the church does. It is God's primary means of sharing this message of reconciliation with the world around us. And you can do a lot of good in the world, but if you're not sharing the message of reconciliation, you are cutting everything short. We can go and fix poverty as a church And go and meet physical needs. And that's an awesome thing. But if we're not at the same time sharing the message of reconciliation, it is temporary at best. At best. You can go meet social needs and and be an activist and and stand up for justice. But if, if that justice and those needs that are being met don't include a reconciliation message between God and man through the work of Jesus Christ, we are selling people short. This is what we're called to. And nobody on the planet can do it like the church does it. When the church is made up of a bunch of people who are deeply experiencing a profound love from God through Jesus and are then compelled to go share that same message with all the different people around them. But you cannot be an ambassador for a kingdom in which you are unfamiliar. You cannot represent a king that you are not familiar with. See, what do ambassadors do? They go into other countries. They go into other places. And I ask the students this in my class. I love this. I say, what does an ambassador do? An ambassador goes into the world that is around them. And I said, are they scared when they go into this other place and they're by themselves? And they don't really always know how to answer that. But the answer is usually like, hey, guys, it's no. They're not scared. Why? Because of who they're representing. Nothing to fear. So I can be a minister of reconciliation when I know who I'm representing. 
But if all you do is know about him and you don't really know him, you don't really experience him, you've not been transformed by him, then you have to ask, like, am I simply getting the shoes, collecting all the stuff? Or am I actually becoming different because of it? This is a fascinating part of this. We have to see evidence of that transformation in our life, or we have to ask, like, like really, am I following Jesus or just an idea of Jesus? Like, man, I got a lot of, I know a lot about him. I grew up in church. I'm carrying on the tradition from my, my parents, and, and I kind of know a bunch, and I've, I'm at church all the time. Where's the evidence of transformation? You simply got the shoes, or are you participating in the run? And this is the hard part. And can I be honest with you? Like, the hardest part of all of it is that this incredible message of reconciliation, that God is re- redeeming every single element of my life. Well, Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians. It's absolute foolishness to those who are perishing. We look at them and we say, hey, your only hope to true healing in your life, for your heart, your identity, and your purpose to be redefined, and for you to be reconciled to the God who created you, rests on the shoulders of a Galilean carpenter 2,000 years ago who died on a cross and three days later walked out of a tomb. And they're like, you lost your mind? Are you kidding me? You're telling me that the only way that my life has purpose is if I put my trust in the man who died on a cross just outside Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, you're, you're telling me that's what I'm supposed to put my trust in? No. See, I think a good God will give good things to good people. I'll take my chances on my own. I'm good. Or, here's the harder part. We'll share that good news with them, and they'll look at us and say, well, I don't see the difference it's made in your life. You know a lot of facts, but like, what, has it really changed you? Like, where's the transformation? I mean, you're telling me it changes everything. Like, where is it? How is your life different than it was before? I mean, I've known you for a long time. Like, nothing's different. Like, what's going on? Like, where is this transformation that's taking place? See, 2 Corinthians 5 compels us to examine our lives. Our faith must be more than simply a bunch of theological truth that we can recite and memorize. Here's the thing. That's a good thing, right? That's a good thing. The shoes, they're good. You know that Brooks running shoes make you a better runner. I don't know it. I just own the shoes, right? I have no clue if it makes you a better runner, and I probably never will. Anybody in the market for some new shoes, okay? But if that's it, if following Jesus is a bunch of theological truth that I can recite and argue about, or a bunch of truths that I can memorize so I can feel better about something, but it's not transforming me, I've simply bought the shoes, And the shoes don't make the runner, and the facts don't make the disciple, and don't bring about the transformation. It is our experience with the deep love of the God of the universe that truly transforms our hearts. This is why verse 21 is so beautiful. Like, it's so beautiful. Here's how he ends it. He says, God made him who had no sin to become sin for us. Like, if that doesn't get you excited to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. That righteousness, the way that word is defined, it is, it is becoming right and right standing with God, but at the same time, becoming the righteousness of God. And so the Christian life, as many have said, is the art of becoming. I'm constantly becoming, being transformed into who he needs me to be to do what he needs me to do. And that's just not easy. It's not easy. For me, it's been really difficult. Up until three years ago, I, there was areas of my life that I wouldn't let him in to transform. And I didn't even know I was doing it. So like, if, if you've known me for a long time, right? Like I, I had this low-grade irritation all the time. Like just 
frustrated about different things. And I'd, some people would call it intimidation. You're intimidating at times, but it was just this low-grade irritation. It wasn't like anger. It wasn't a temper. It wasn't losing my cool. I just kind of had this little bit of a frustration in me all the time. Like I just had it. And three years ago, I finally said, you know what? I need to figure this thing out. Some of you are like, have you figured it out? <laughs> like, yes, I've been working on it. Okay. So three years ago, I went down to Tennessee to meet with a counselor who specializes in working with pastors. And in three days, he shredded my life in a good way, in a painful way, and showed me areas. Can we put that picture back up? He showed me areas in my life where I just wasn't letting him in to transform them. It's like, yeah, I know a lot about God. I'm a minister. I preach the gospel. I've experienced that. Trans- it's compelling me. I want to live different. But then there's these certain parts of my heart and my life that I was like, eh. That's a, little, oh, that's a little too painful. So here's the thing. This week, what are you going to do? Like, do we just listen to the sermon and we go home and like, that's it? Or like, do you see an area of your life where it's like, it's still a little too painful? I'm not quite sure I want to let like that transformation take place in that area of my life. And what are you going to do? What do we do about it? Are you willing to take those next steps? Are you willing to allow him to continue to transform all of you? Why? Because you'll experience the fullness of life. Because here's the deal. If you want to experience the fullness of life that Jesus promises, you have to adopt the lifestyle he's called you to. Let's pray. Father, this is really, really hard for many of us. Because so much of this incredible life that Jesus has called us to looks so incredible and we want it. And then when we count the cost, our pride, our intellect, other things, they just get in the way. It becomes so difficult for us to allow ourselves to be loved. And we don't, we don't feel like we can be loved for the shame and the guilt that we're carrying. And so we, we put on a good smile and we fake it till we make it. And, and we burn out. God, you want so much more than that in our lives. And so my prayer this week is we begin to explore the areas of our life where we've maybe kept you out. Would you help us to open the door and let you in? Knowing that you're going to change it in such a profound way that it will compel us to share that good news of transformation with the people around us. Father, would you help us to become who you've called us to be so that we can do what you've called us to do? We ask you for this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said,